Want to know how to become a highly effective organizational consultant the Disney way? Well, then tune into this episode of the Enough Already podcast. I'm your host, Betsy Jordan, and in every episode, we talk about finding the courage to turn your unique strengths, your perspective, your experience into a profitable, purpose-driven consulting or coaching business. Today's guests are my treasured colleagues, Harold Hill and Luis Marrero. The three of us worked together as internal consultants at Walt Disney World before we each individually took the leap into full-time business ownership. And I'm not going to lie, this conversation was a blast. It was one of the most fun conversations I've had yet on the podcast because, one, I got to take a trip down memory lane, and we just did a great job, I think, just deconstructing what it was about our experience as internal consultants that was so unique and powerful and allowed us to be so successful in our own individual businesses. You're going to hear Harold and Louise validate all the things that you might have heard me share about what we did at Disney that was so effective, especially around our intentionality around our consulting approach that we use with our clients and how we captured our best practices into an online experience, which actually served as, as an inspiration for me behind this e-course that I created that I called the Consultants Toolbox that I'm putting back on the market. So if you want to learn more about this consulting approach that we use at Disney and to grow our own businesses, I've got a holiday gift for you. I'm launching a brand new masterclass that will show you exactly how do you make money and a difference as an organizational consultant. So I rushed to make sure that this was done in time for the holidays because I know there's a lot of you who are like me that you use the holidays as a time for reflection and personal development and a masterclass to give you some new ideas is perfect for that. So if you want to sign up for this masterclass, head on over to www.betsyjordanwith.com a Y, not an A, dot com forward slash consulting hyphen masterclass and sign up now. The other thing you're going to love about my conversation with Harold and Luis is their journey into full-time business ownership. You're going to hear how they've been able to build businesses that leverage the best of who they are and frankly, who they've always been. You're going to be inspired to see that purpose, gifting, and passion, all of that that's inside of you really is the best path to a business that is profitable and one that you love. And we wrapped up our conversation with why consultants are so needed today, especially given all the challenges that are facing senior leaders. So are you ready for a behind the scenes peek into consulting the Disney way that you can apply and use to grow your own organizational consulting effectiveness? Then let's do this. So welcome to the show, Harold and Louise. I'm so excited to have you guys here. Um, before we get into our conversation, I'd love to have you both introduce yourselves to my my audience. Okay, Luis, I can please. get started. No problem. Luis Matero, I'm the um, founding partner of the Boston Institute for Meaningful Purpose. You can see Boston in my background here. Uh, I write books in meaningful purpose psychology. I hate to talk about myself, but I'm known as the father of meaningful purpose psychology and organization development 2.0. Um, what I do for a living is to help people find meaning and purpose in life. Uh, that includes individuals, uh, families, groups, organizations. Um, and I work with global companies uh, um, from all over the world to help them pretty much uh, determine uh, what meaningful purpose should be and how to execute it. I also do leadership and psychological assessments and coaching and leadership development for leaders, again, from around the world. So that very briefly is myself. There we go. Well, that, that's all you do. It's like, yeah. write, <laughs> teach, do this. You're okay. You sound like a busy guy. Yeah. Harold. 
And good afternoon. I'm not sure when it's going to be recorded. Hello, everyone. My name is Harold Hill, and I am both an organization development consultant as well as an executive and leadership coach. I've been doing this work for about 25 years in various capacities, both as an internal resource and most recently as an external resource. Uh, I would probably say some of the work that I have a passion for or specialize in is uh, change management, uh, leadership development, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and just one-on-one -on -one, uh, executive coaching. Uh, we'll talk more about why that's a passion of mine, but I find that uh, organizations today, uh, the more they invest in particularly leadership, uh, the more they will get a return that, that is immeasurable with regards to a number of, of measures, profitability, retention, uh, cultural alignment, so many other things. Um, live in Raleigh, North Carolina, but have traced around, uh, consider Chicago to be my home and uh, too, know the, my too. partners here from uh, from Orlando and my time with Disney. I look forward to uh, talking more about that. And thank you, Betsy, for inviting me to be a part of this amazing podcast. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. I'm so excited because, you know, as I mentioned, I have been talking so much on the last um, several podcast episodes about my Disney experience. Like I keep talking about, well, this is what we did at Disney. This is what we did at Disney. And having you all come on, who are my Disney colleagues, my treasured dear forever um, Disney colleagues to share about our experience because we really did have a unique experience. And so I, I'm excited to get into a conversation about like, what was it so, un what was made our experience so unique and then how did we carry it forward? And let's just chat about like the state of organizations and why do people like, I believe like all consultants should be trained in some degree in organization development, no matter what your area of expertise is, you may or may or not agree, but um, I think that that's a burning, burning platform for given where things are at today. So that's what I hope to have a conversation on. So let's get into it. Let's go back to what 1999 when I started at Disney and Louis started in 1999 and Harold joined us very shortly thereafter in 2000. And let's talk about what was it like on our team? Like, what do you think it was about? Like, let's like put some framework around what made our team really unique and our Disney experience so special. Let's start, Harold. Sorry, either one. Uh, wow, I mean, uh, I'll start, but I, I will no way try to exhaust because I'm one, I'll miss a lot of things, but two, I think that we all saw it from very different perspectives. Uh, I have to say that uh, one of the things coming to Disney in 2000, I did not come in as what many people would define as a Disney file, uh, a person who had a passion for the Disney brand per se. I, I joined the organization because I had a passion for OD and I knew some of the individuals who were part of the internal um, uh, OD practice. And I wanted to participate in a world-class uh, OD organization. I think that um, I later learned to have a passion for Disney. And, and if you're there and you're part of the pixie dust or the magic, it, it can't help but rub off. But uh, several things I think stand out for me as far as what made that particular um, consultancy, internal consultancy so effective. The, the first one I would say is, and I do share this one with others that I, I come in contact with, is that there was a, um, a, a I want to say a discipline, a rigor, those probably aren't the right word, but there was certainly a consistency with regards to what we were practicing and why we were practicing it. We had a known internal brand of when you called one of our people who reported into whether it was Jane Parker or Chris King into a resort, a park, 
a line of business that they were going to get a consistency with regards to assessments, uh, facilitation, uh, uh, various interventions to help them be more effective. So it wasn't like you could just join and do whatever you want. We had that consistency, which came to be because of our, hold on now, those Friday afternoon uh, practice sessions that we would have. And I thought I told somebody, I thought we did it once a month, once a week, but I, I guess when I thought about it, it was once a month. So, it was you know, once a week. It was, was it every, it was every Friday from 335. We may have like mixed up who got assigned, but it was every Friday from 335. Oh, but you necessarily weren't always in the cave having it all the time. So you went <laughs> a couple of times a month. I just remember doing it every time. Okay, and maybe anyway. it was like the earlier time, but I talked about it. See, now, for those of you who have listened to my podcast and teaching, I didn't make this up. Yeah. It did yeah. happen. I, I thought it was once a week, but then I I did the math and I'm like, I know I didn't go 50 times. So maybe, maybe it, it alternated. But even in those 90 minute sessions where we actually got to practice difficult conversations, where we actually got to practice how to deliver, um, uh, how to be put out on assessment, whatever the skill was that we were practicing, you got an opportunity to practice it, get real-time feedback, and then observe others deliver in a similar way. So the structure to that was was very powerful. I, I think that was one thing that made it uh, that consultancy very unique. And then the second one that I'll, I'll stop after that one is, I believe that in, in order for an or, internal organization to be effective, they have to do work between each other. We were able to support each other and say, hey, I need someone to come over and help me at the Magic Kingdom, or hey, we're doing this at the resort, or wow, we're having this big summit, we need all hands on deck. The fact that we did so much work together beyond just practicing with each other, I think solidified our skill set to, um, to be value added to our clients, to be confident when we were uh, in front of a client that, that, uh, to do the work to ensure that you know people had the support they need to develop and grow. So those are two things, the Friday sessions and then us working together were uh, two very big highlights that I, I remember from our time together. Actually, I'm kind of hearing three things in what you're saying. I think that there's one is there was like rigor and discipline in defining our consulting approach. The second is that we practiced it. And then the third is we applied it in a collaborative sort of consistent way where we work together as a team for that common agenda. So it seems like there's three things I'm hearing that. Is, is that accurate? It is. That's a very accurate way of, I, I combined those first two together, but yes, certainly all three can stand alone because sometimes people only do certain parts of that and not all three together. So thank you for a very, very nice summary. Thank you. So what about you, Luis? What did you find unique or special about our time? Well, I was a Disney fan when I came in and my kids home, if you don't take the job, we'll kill you. So I was very happy to uh, go in Disney and I'm, I, it's, I still have uh, very warm feelings about my experience uh, of Walt Disney World. Um, but but at the same time, it, it was you know, working for a company of the reputation of Disney was something that really attracted me. And then uh, knowing that this new department was being put together and helping shape it in some way, shape, or form was also an exciting, you know, proposition for me. But the thing that really stood out for me, uh, Harold and Betsy, from from the experiences was the quality of people like yourself. I mean, I can go, oh, you know, we were talking previously about Dina and some of the other members of the team, high quality people. I really respected the intelligence, the integrity of the um, of the members of the team. Um, we did 
work together, for instance, to put together tools. You know, you would write, you know, in terms of uh, the, the structure and the discipline, uh, and so there was some consistency, but the consultants helped shape the, the content of the portfolio of services that we had. And that really reflected the brightness, the intelligence of the uh, group, of uh, the team that we have put together. And the other thing that I'll always keep in you know, mind, and again, very warm feelings, was the fact that we were very collegial. It was a very respectful deal. We have fun together. Mm -hmm. We work hard, but we also have a lot of fun together. And the uh, third thing that I also enjoyed very much was that we were respected by our clients. And we were yeah. in high demand by our clients. You know, like I remember even, you know, when I was working in food and beverage, my senior leadership team fought because they wanted to leave, you know, a function to go serve as an OG consultant somewhere else. So they fought for me. So those those are the most, you know, um, striking things that, that I remember from, from them past. Um, yeah, so, so I'll start with those three. I think I, they think that that's such a good point too. Is like it wasn't it wasn't that just we were intentional about how we developed whatever our approaches were. Is that we had really bright people working on it. And I would add in one other thing around that is the thing that I think is unique about Chris. Like at the beginning, we all thought like, oh my gosh, his vision. You know, he had this vision for us to be this internal consultancy that was as good as an external consultancy. But he he didn't just like have a vision though. He because some of it is we didn't one hundred percent understand like well why do we need to do it this way? But he was very insistent. But he gave us the time. You know, we had work sessions where we had time to wrestle through and debate. You know, like what is the best approach to org design? We didn't just like come up with something. We researched the best practices, but then we had the time and space to debate it. And so right. I would just kind of add in there is like we had to combine what both of you said is there's a discipline approach with the quality people, but we had the time to really hone our skills. We didn't just get information and hope for the best. And then to add in what you said, Luis, around our clients, not only did we have, we were respected and we had high demand, but we had really creative, really great executives. And I feel like for me, the executives that I worked with pushed me to be better, to come up with new approaches, you know, to really work through you know, some of the, the pragmatics around how do you, how do you take strategy or org design and implement it in the context of a highly matrix, you know, complex environment with tons of politics. And we had to learn to apply it in that particular context. That's been like one of the big things for me. I don't know what, if you would agree with that. I would agree with that. I would also say that a, the company was well served because they had this, well, they had the culture where it's all about making people happy. So when you have such a you know a mission, it makes uh, life easier because the as you know, part of our uh, uh, one of the tools that we had around strategy and how it was applied was to you know make sure that we have this uh, um, our leadership you know leading uh, the guest the cast member in a particular way so we could you know do the works with particular processes and structures in order to delight the customer. So when you have that type of a culture. It just creates this, uh, this I'm going to use the word context or ambiance, if you will, or value system that helps do the work for something worthwhile. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to do something that is magical for a guest. And I think that created an attitude of um, we have to practice this amongst ourselves. Um, so it's hard work, 
but at the same time, it's very, um, very guest focused, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, we had opportunities to work on projects that would create value. Like we had a couple times where we had to deal with the complexity of a layoff. Like, I mean, we all remember, you know, when there was the voluntary separation and then the involuntary separation. And, but that's like small part of our experience rather than the larger part. You know, like Luis, you and I worked on that forward to the basics project that now is being taught at the Disney Institute. Harold, you and I yeah. worked on a project that we implemented the basics with another external client. Mm -hmm. And we worked on this project, but it was all around value creation. It was all around how can we make this better? How can we improve the guest cast and the cast leader interaction? And I think that that's another part is we got to be creative and we weren't doing remedial stuff of like fixing a really dysfunctional organization. We're taking something good and making it even better. Yeah, yeah. Disney's uh, ability to have a strong culture, strongly and clearly defined culture, values that they consistently pointed to, and uh, uh, operations that were—I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of people going through turnstiles every day—and we were just there, like you say, to take it to the next level based on the way we could tap into the human dynamics, the the people side of the business, the the parts that sometimes are you know, can get overlooked when you are just, you know, crunching through uh, uh, out throughput. Um, something else I, I would say is that in the time that we were there, so I was there a total of nine years as a uh, internal and three years uh, as a contractor. We saw so many different um, types of consultants come through our practice. So at our peak, we, we were maybe 25, 30, I'm kind of guessing that number. And that ebb and flow based on people coming in and out. But there were uh, practitioners who came in who were from very different schools of thoughts. Some of them didn't stay very long, but they still added something of their well, their presence that were there. Uh, both Luis and I had uh, were part of National Training Laboratories, NTL. We brought part of that work in uh, our view of, of consulting that way. Uh, I've still continued into my uh, gestalt therapy, and I, I brought some of that part in there. So no matter who it was, wherever they came from, however long they stayed, and, and whatever they brought, we were able to, um, I think, have what we call a loose enough boundary to let in what we thought was of value, but not so loose that anything goes and we, we were not clear of who we were. Well, I think some of the value there, I uh, to reinforce your point, I, I love what you're saying. It's like even people who were there not that long still made a lasting impact. Like I still know about doing action sessions because of one individual who was there and I don't think she was there all that long. You know, there was a lot of people kind of came in and out, but everybody made a lasting impact. But the... Um, but the the idea that we had commonality, I think it really began with how we got the jobs. Like we didn't apply for the jobs. We had to audition for the jobs. Do you guys remember the audition process? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. So we had to, in order to get the job at Disney, we were given a case study. And when I don't know if it was like this with you, Harold, but I know it was like this with you and I, Louise, when we first started. And you go in and you start you're doing your case study and presenting you know, your OD approach to whatever the case study was. And then somewhere in the middle of it, you know, they just like the people that were sort of like you thought you were in a group interview all of a sudden became a role play. And all of a sudden they start 
pretending that they're this dysfunctional executive team and it's like you're just like what just happened why are they fighting like this is so weird it's like this is normal you know and they were testing like how do you handle those situations eventually we did give the um, applicants a heads up by putting on name tags and say hey we're moving into the role play now but re remember were you there Luis when it was yeah. like you just get blindsided and all of a sudden <laughs> it's like wait a minute Harold did you have that same experience Absolutely. I, I can almost, if I think about it, recall who all were in, uh, was in my particular panel. I think there were six, but I remember when I was one of the panelists and we were doing an inter interview for another person and I legitimately had a phone call that came in during the course of the panel and it wasn't part of the role play. I had to get up and walk out and take the call and then come back in. And the candidate was like, what just happened here? It's like, that happens. You know, you, how do you, how do you keep a executive team focused when they're getting up in the middle of your, you know, work and, and walking out? So yeah, that's, um, that, that I think different than some other panel interviews, which are much more question focused was very much about the behaviors. What are the behaviors that you would demonstrate with regards to how you, how your presence can make a difference for a client? And if you find yourself unable to have that presence, think on your feet, certainly um, be at the moment meeting the client where they were, then you're probably going to struggle in the organization and that would come out pretty quickly in the role play. It was like an yeah. assessment, assessment center type of an approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that there was a lot of discipline in how we got hired, really a lot of clarity on the competencies we needed to have. And I would believe that one of the big competencies based on what we just talked about with the audition is it wasn't as much about our technical skills as much as it was about our political savvy and our relationship savvy as we applied it. And I think that's where a lot of consultants struggle is they get very committed to like, here's my five steps to something or another. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always work that way. Like when I went to the animal kingdom, the first thing, so um, I was not the first consultant. I was like the second consultant, but the consultant who was at animal kingdom before me, they said, you better not be like this person. And they literally tied up because that other consultant was very methodology focused and they literally tied up that person. Now animal kingdom was a little bit crazy back in the opening days. And they're like, you know, if that, if you start getting all methodology, we don't care about your OD methodology. It's like, you have to Trojan horse, a lot of that stuff. I don't know if I learned how to Trojan horse, what I was trying to move the client to and meet the client where they're at, at, because of this experience. I don't know if you guys would agree with that. I would agree with that. And um, to your point, the consultant coming in, we have, uh, we call ourselves consultants or might be coached. Um, the important thing is to ask the client, what is it you want? What is it you need? And then for the, the person offering the service is to answer the question, what is the most appropriate intervention or, or support system for this individual, for this company is, is the case. For instance, I came up as a, um, a concept called, called coach salting. And coach salting, uh, what it does is it allows the coach to free himself or herself from the tyranny of the ICF strict, you know, code of uh, you can't deviate from this. And I've seen situations where a person was being coached, she didn't deviate from the coaching role and the person got fired the next week because in the moment, what the person needed was consulting, not coaching. Mm -hmm. he, he or she, this, the, the client couldn't come up with the, the right answer. And it was just taking too long and she wasn't taking the person to the point of saying, getting herself to the point and telling the client, listen, this is what you need to do, ABC. 
and I'll save your life and I'll save your job, put it into practice. So there's times where the consultant has to be, uh, has to forget about himself or herself, be selfless, be humble, and say, this is what the person needs. I have to change my style or if I'm not the right person, I call Harold, hey, Harold, you're the expert of everything. You solve this for me, please. <laughs> I that, love goes back, yeah. that goes back to one of the earlier trainings that we got, which was on the partnership setup process and how we were able to pivot the client from wants to needs to the goals. And I think that that is a big thing is like really getting focused on, you know, what are the outcomes? And it's like, there's a lot of ways to get to the outcome, but it's like being in the moment to figure out what does that client need in that moment? Yeah, I love that. Harold, do you want to add anything to this conversation? Not to that part of the partnership setup, but I certainly would agree with it. I still have my outline of my partnership set up with regards to uh, just how to build that common ground with that person so that it feels more like a partnership as opposed to a uh, directive. But um, one of the things I think that also served to support uh, our success, I believe, was the positioning that we had with regards to our HR partner. And, and, and I know for a fact that as I went into to different, I was at the Magic Kingdom for a number of years, and I went to cruise lines, and I went to some other lines of businesses, each one having a different HR partner. And I think that uh, for the majority of the time that I was there, we were very much centralized uh, leadership, but deployed uh, as, as independent standalone, as opposed to reporting into HR. And uh, when you were able to find that balance with that HR partner that felt like a, a partnership, uh, it, it was it was so much more effective and so much more. Uh, they did their part. We did our part. And we brought something collective to the client as opposed to there were a couple of times that I was positioned uh, with an HR partner that it, it did not have that same balance and rhythm. And and uh, it, it, you could the 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 ultimate client could feel this, the tension between those partners when they're like, kind of like feeling like their head was on a swivel from time to time. But for the most part, I would say we were oftentimes well positioned with regards to what we were there for and how we could both support the client in partnership with HR. I think that's such a great point is we were well positioned with our clients and with our partners, like, and yeah. our, our colleagues. So we were well positioned that standpoint. So it seems like we have a lot of best practices that we have that we we had in there is we had really great people. We had a lot of discipline focus. We had time to work on things. We were positioned well. We were supported. Um, what about like the, like we had the OD workbench, like how valuable did you find the OD workbench? And let's explain what the OD workbench is. Please do. <laughs> Okay, I'll give my okay. version of it. I've, I've heard people say um, one of the metaphors is like, it's this um, really interesting garage that uh, you can go in and you know you've got a ton of tools there, but if your garage is not organized very well, you can spend a, a lot of time looking for something like, I know I had that screwdriver somewhere, but I just can't find it. Well, the OD workbench was one that was laid out in such a way that if you it's had- It's an internet site. An internet yeah. site that you can put in keywords or you can go directly to, it was uh, oftentimes designed around the three circle model for some period of time and then other models as well, that we could very quickly go in and find new leader transition templates uh, or design uh, criteria with regards to what are the design criteria for any uh, organization. Uh, the change man management methodology. So whatever your client was requesting for, Oftentimes, rather than trying to Google it, even though I don't even think Google was uh, that available back then, rather than going 
going outside of the organization uh, to some other space where we had our was own it, library. Of, was it, was it Yahoo back then? It may have been. XGs or something like that. <laughs> yeah. we, were, we didn't have to worry about that because we had done the work to put the best tools available uh, that we had vetted ourselves and that clients were consistently looking at, even to the, uh, to the um, balance uh, scorecard. Uh, the balance um, dashboard that was able to be implemented so consistently across a you know billion dollar company and multiple clients because we were all going to that same workbench to say how do we start that conversation what does that template look like what does the client's final product look like and and again people love to say hey I can show my template my my scorecard at studios to Grand, uh, Grand Floridian, and they look very similar with regard to how they were put together. Very different colors because they're very different businesses, but at least they say it's an apple to apple to comparison as opposed to, I don't know what you guys are measuring over there. Yeah. Harold? You mean I mean, Luis? not Harold. Luis, oh my God, I'm looking oh, at this. okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the work, but just as I think Harold did a good I'm staring at that person. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Uh, a very good job explaining is a portfolio a service that you can go in and pick what you need. Um, it provides some consistency, like you mentioned, uh, Harold, in terms of what the clients were getting. And at the same time, so the consistency, it just brought not only to us, but discipline to the system and how to go about and doing things through best practices. These were best practices, just good approaches to doing strategy work or in new leader transition, like you mentioned, role clarification. One of the things that I remember that was very helpful at the time was making sure that roles were clear. Uh, not mm -hmm. that it was new, but the emphasis on it, particularly the point that the consultant consults and the lead, their leads, that we're not surrogate leaders and we have some standards that we follow. You could find that in one bucket, one place. You know, just draw that information, design the solution and present it to the client and, and take them to success. Yeah, that, that was that's a wonderful tool. Did I tell you guys that I made a um, an e-course that was modeled off of the OD workbench that I called the Consultants Toolbox, yeah. and and it's serving my my clients who purchased the program for the same thing, you know, because especially now, like, why do you want to Google best practices? Like, so much easier if you could just download it, and even if you don't use it exactly the way that it was, like for me, it's like, okay, wait, what was it that we worked on? And then, or what was, what's the tool there? And I may not use it exactly that way, but at least it was a, a first draft or something to spark my thinking so that I can continue to apply it to whatever my, my client needed at that time. I love that. Um, I love that whole concept. And besides, I love the whole projects. I loved when we had to do all the research and, you know, I was model lady, you know, where I like doing that, but it's, but I think it's so valuable because then you don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time you deal with a client. Like I remember, and actually we could move into talking about how we've applied this as we've moved into our own external consultancy practices, you know, but I remember um, because I had all of this stuff and muscle memory, like I landed a new client when I was doing the consulting that was in Canada in a, I never met anybody. I landed this huge contract with people I never met hundred percent virtually. I'm walking into this new company in this area of the world I've never been in. And I kind of had like that nervousness, like, okay, wait, what am I going to, you know, I wonder how I'm going to do it. And it's like, no, 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 wait, I can trust my process. I know exactly what mm -hmm. I need to do. And it's like, every time I tried new things and landed clients in other parts of the world or things that I've never done, I can go back to this proven process 
And I just know that it's going to work. I don't know if you guys experienced that and if it benefited you as you went from the external, internal consultancy to the external. Yeah. Well, I had to go ahead, Harold. Go ahead. No, I, 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 um, I would agree from the standpoint of a client can almost sense when you're almost, when you have this look like you're figuring it out as you go along, as opposed to in the back of your mind, you're holding some sort of model very loosely. It's like, I know yours won't be exactly like this, but I've done this enough times before to know what this could look like. And let me put some option out for you. Or let me paint what a big picture could be, realizing that yours would be different. They have a, that you can see almost anxiety kind of lower in them as you speak about what this work could be, realizing that I'm not dictating to you, this is what the work will be. But if you've never done it before and you're just kind of like, uh, asking these questions and when they give you an answer you're scribbling down the answer because it's like oh I've got to remember that they they can then say well, who, who, how am I how can I put confidence in someone who in some ways has kind of figured this out as we go that that to me uh, was one of the better as I transitioned out to an external the confidence it has like you you've done you've clearly done this before it's like I've done similar things before and I know I can help yeah, I think that that's the good point is I've done similar things, like because mm -hmm. every client really is different. Every culture is different. Every starting point is different. But you can draw on the I've done something like this and I, I know I can help you. And you could have mm -hmm. that language. Mm -hmm. What about for you, Luis? I would say the same. <clears throat> it's good to have the portfolio of uh, um, potential services that you can provide. So as I'm listening to the client, again, putting the client first in terms of what is his or her need or the company's needs. And uh, then goes to the checkbox, you know, this, do I know how to do this? Do I have the tools to be able to address this and do it quickly? And if the checkbox keeps on going, yes, yes, yes. I, I tell the client, yeah, definitely I can help you. But I paraphrase like crazy to make sure that the client is feeling understood. I also take them, like you were suggesting, Betsy, to what is the final outcome here? How would it look like sort of a thing and focus more on the end product? Uh, I also encourage, for instance, the use of measurements, you know, very, very big into the using of measurements. How will we know we've been successful? And, and many times I remember a, a client from Mexico, this big company in Mexico that I did work with, that they, they said, you're the first consultant who's ever asked us that um, part of the measurement system of the work that a consultant will do is returning an investment and whether we're going to increase the profit of the company or reduce costs in some shape or form. Nobody has ever done that. They just come in, they do a team building, for instance, and you know the measurements, are you happy sort of a thing and you, know, you feel more cohesion, that sort of a thing. So bringing that business language and being able to uh, um, to have solutions ready to, to, to provide to the client, uh, and they can see, like Harold was saying, they can see you know, you know, you know that you know, and they can tell that you know that you know your stuff, and you can start giving them some guidance around not only how it can look like, but tell them there's there's solutions for this, and we can help you. I love and, that. And That's another thing. One one oh. more quick thing, uh, Betsy, about what Luis is saying that I have found, and I I think that this this has hugely been helpful for me. I have to oftentimes remember to be humble, and what I mean by that is. If I sound like I have too many answers too quickly, it, it, it can come off either arrogant or it can come off as not listening. But but we have such a wealth and and I don't want to like, you know, be chomping at the bit to kind of like say, yes, let me do this for you. <laughs> but I was in Atlanta last week and some client was talking about something saying like, you know what, I am still struggling with how to do measurements. And and just in the back of my mind, I just, you know, I didn't blur it out, but I said, you know, you should Google Kirk, Kirk, Kirkpatrick. 
And he's like, never heard of it. He went to his phone, Google, like, how did you know this? And it's kind of like, you know, Friday afternoon, three to five o'clock, we went through the Kirkpatrick, you know, five levels. And actually, that was, uh, what's his name? That was because uh, we came, he, were you, I don't know if you were there yet, but we had him Joel do the Hinn? training. No, no, no. Oh, Jack Phillips. Jack Phillips. Well, Louis, okay. you were there for that training. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. actually had Jack Phillips. So Jack Phillips took the Kirkpatrick model and added the ROI component. Okay. And that's what I was going to say. I'm like, that's a hugely unique thing that our leader did mm -hmm. is he forced us to know how to measure it. We had to at mm -hmm. least take two projects to a level five measurement. And I think that really built a certain level of um, business acumen. But anyway, you were saying that you were talking well, to a client and they, they, you looked it up. They, they had never heard of any types of measurements. I mean, even to distinguish between a level one to a level three to a level five. And, and I did not have the workbench pulled up, but I knew enough in my mind to where to get them started down the path. But to the point I was making earlier is that if we, if I can sometimes come off as though you know, I know all this stuff and I've done all this stuff, that is not a spirit or a, a persona I want to pull off because it, it does not engage the client as far as we're partnering with this together as opposed to in the end you have all the answers and you're just not telling me them until you think I'm ready to hear them it's like I don't want that to be how I'm perceived and I'm not saying that I always would be but you can see how it's like saying like we've done all this before or something similar before it can be uh, not always ingratiated to us so I think that's like why the partnership setup is so important is like, I'll tell like when I'm mentoring people around their consulting skills or their contracting skills, I'll always say is you have to go into every contracting conversation with a client is the client is never right. Neither are you, you know, when you're at that initial phase, nobody's right because nobody has the data. So the client won't know because they have the nose of the window pane syndrome. And you don't know because you don't, you don't know the company. Just because it worked in another company doesn't mean that this is the issue here. It may look like it. So you almost have, you have to hold yourself back until you get the data, until you uh, triangulate it and find out from the customers and from the employees and from the leaders, from the stakeholders. And what they want is never the same. A client, whatever the client, I've never been in an experience where a client says, hey, I want you to deliver this methodology. And the client was ever right once I got through the assessment. They've never been right. But I've never been right from what I thought it was in the first in the first blush. And I think that there's a humility too when it comes to the assessment, like where I get really, really like where I am less, not hum, like I would say not less humble, but like really bullish is when I hear the employees, like then I'm going to give voice to these employees and then I'll have my independent point of view. And my independent point of view is not my independent point of view. It's being that faithful channel, you know, for the customers, being that faithful reporter of here's what they say and making sure that those employees who trusted us who sat in those focus groups, who opened up their hearts to us, who sat in the interviews, that we are going to represent their perspective. That's the only time I think we get attached, we can get attached because we're there to represent it. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the recommendations, it's like there's a thousand ways that we could solve this problem. Yeah. yeah. Well said. So um, okay, so let's talk about your journeys from being internal consultants to external consultants. What motivated you? So we love Disney. We all love Disney, but we all left Disney and started our own businesses. What was the motivator for both of you to decide I I want to go and take do my own thing, be my own boss? Go ahead, Harold. Uh, oh, okay. 
I'll, I'll, I know I'm, I'm happy to start. I appreciate the invite. <laughs> I'll, I'll get you next time. <laughs> um, mine actually was not as much of a intentional waking up in one morning and saying, I want to be my own boss. I want to go on my own. It was a uh, divine intervention. Um, I was separated from Disney in 2009 and took about six months to figure out what would I, what would be my next step. And uh, the February after that, April, that uh, I came to a, a fork in the road, I had an internal opportunity with uh, with Lockheed Martin. We can, we can say company's name, can't we? I had an internal opportunity with Lockheed Martin and a uh, external consulting position with another uh, mid-sized uh, company out of Atlanta. And I, I, I prayed about it and I, I thought about it and I was like, I've done the internal, if I've taken a lucky position, it would have been the uh, Disney version just with the defense contractor. Uh, so, and I, I could almost plan out what that would look like for the next 15 years without you know much change. The opportunity with this mid-sized consulting group uh, gave me something I never had before. So I took a, a bit of a leap, leap of faith to saying, I know that I could advance my internal skills by working with an external consulting firm, at least for some period of time. And I did that for a little over a year. I uh, come to find out they weren't really, and they um, said they were an OD firm, but they really were a project management IT firm and did very little OD part at the end. So I found myself very unutilized. And so transitioning out of that, uh, I found uh, the choice I made is I knew that I wanted to do more work that got uh, directly into the organizations, usually at the director, VP, senior VP level to have an impact. And I realized that to do that, I had to narrow what I was offering. I think different than when I was at Disney where they could call us in for org design, they could call us in for change management, they could call us in for team effectiveness, leader transition. I mean, we saw what the workbench had. There was no way I could do that externally. So I said, what is it that I have the most passion for? And through those first five years out of Disney, when I was practicing on my own, it was a ton of change management. I went back and got um, certified in pro side change management. I, I did a lot of large change work, large scale change work for organizations as large as um, uh, federal agencies in Washington, D.C. to uh, small companies in um, uh, College Station, uh, Texas, uh, Texas A&M University. So it, change management was a passion of mine and I did that for five years, but as I did more change work, it then uh, brought me into co uh, culture alignment work, which eventually then brought me into a bit of uh, DNI work. But the long and the story, short of the story is, I need to narrow what it was I was doing as opposed to saying that even though I have skills to do a lot of different OD services, I would not have survived or would not have, I don't feel I would have been a successful consultant if I try to pursue every service as a way of generating work. I narrowed it down to about three or four, uh, starting with change and moving on from there. Yeah, so it seems like then what got you to do your own thing is you got separated and looked at it as divine intervention. You didn't mm -hmm. want to recreate your career mm -hmm. and your business. Um, you tried out an, a, another consultancy firm and it wasn't allowing you to have the control over the kind of work you wanted to do. You started to do your own thing. And then through that, really identifying like out of all these things I can do, what do I love to do the most? What am I best at? And really mm -hmm. built your practice around that whole thing, which a lot of times isn't like what we think it is in the beginning. It took forever as an external consultant for me that I'm really good on the front end of a project, like the setup, 
but then it's like when it moves into implementation, like I, I become less effective, but it's like, oh, well, I feel like I should be doing all of that. But it's like, no, I should, I'm really good up front. You know, I should stay up front, mm-hmm. you know, but it's hard to, how did you get to a point where you got rid of like any scarcity fears or any other concerns to narrow in? How did you get to that point and really trust what you're great at is what you wanted to monetize? Well, in, in a lot of ways, it was uh, who I partnered with. So, for example, you and I partnered on a couple of projects where you did do a lot of that front end stuff, which I don't have a passion for and I was waiting for the implement implementation part. So who I partnered with, I was able to then glean from them some of the necessary uh, skills, uh, knowledge, uh, behaviors to allow me to be a beginning to end type of consultant because th- there are things that I was not very uh, proficient in. Uh, so partnering with you, uh, there were pe- uh, other people from my Gestalt community that I would partner with that would help me with other parts of the consultancy that I was building. Um, went from an L- from an S corp to an LLC back to an S corp based on you know having to do the back end of billing and 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 the uh, the uh, the parts to do with the paperwork pieces of it. So it was really the partners that I worked with that were able to um, step in to fill the, the the parts that I was missing uh, to be successful. That and um, that and the fact that always having the choice of, I wouldn't say say no, but I knew that there were opportunities that were presented to me that if I had pursued them and actually landed the work, I would have been uh, unhappy. And I feel like, you know, since I was a boss, I really couldn't fire myself. I had no one to blame but myself if I were to take on work that I knew would not align with my passions or the skill set that I had. So. Yeah, so you really trusted that your own intuition around what was right for you. And so it doesn't doesn't sound like you were really struggling that much with the fear as much as it was just getting clear, like getting clear that these are the parts of the work that I like, and I just trust my own intuition around it. Yes, but there was fear. I mean, you know that the bills only get paid when you (laughs) land the work. There were were years that were uh, much more... um, profitable than others. Uh, I think that part of part of the struggle as particularly as a one person shop, even if I would have partnered with a couple of other people was it's hard to pursue the work, do the work and, and consider to build the network or the work all at the same time. So uh, when the funnel wasn't very full, there was uh, not so much fear. It's just a matter of how patient can I be to wait for what it is that I know I can do work wise. Yeah. And that if you are spending time doing work that you don't love, you won't have the capacity when the work that you do love becomes yeah. available. How about you, Luis? What's your journey? Uh, well, my mission in life is to uh, um, apply and help people discover the meaning and purpose of their lives and and uh, um, how, to li- how to thrive in life. I'm very active with the International Positive Psychology Association, among other places, to as my um, my ground place where where I interact with people in this discipline of psychology. Uh, I'm a founding member of the working organization division uh, with ANIPA, and um, and I have the fortune of have been of working with researchers from the university, but also practitioners in bringing the latest research around psychology and how it applies to organizations, how, how does it apply to work. So that's, that's been very enriching. 
And the reason why I got involved with EPAD and also the International Network for Personal Meaning is because I've I've been a very strong student of um, Victor Frankl, logotherapy, uh, Adler's individual psychology in particular, uh, uh, Kurt Lewin from a social psychology perspective, a psychology, it's a, it's a field that I have a passion for. And, you know, stuff that happened in the past is, just led me to um, start having this, this aha around meeting and how does that applies to companies. And then I had the fortune to work for YSC Business Psychologist, which is a London-based um, uh, consulting firm uh, recently acquired by Accenture. Um, again, a whole bunch of bright people. Um, and I spend a lot of time doing psychological leadership assessment and coaching to executives of global companies. Most, most of them British, uh, Australian, of that sort. Uh, uh, and then I started to notice certain patterns. Uh, um, and I just got intrigued, you know, by what, what I was discovering and then asking myself the question, you know, you know how does this apply to, to organization development? And then I found that uh, the theory that I have been developing around meaningful purpose or logo teleology, uh, I could, you know, add value and help sort of reveal people this is what's really happening here. Uh, and basically what it says, the theory says is that we all give meaning to ourselves, other people, situations, and whatever meaning you, you're, you're operating from, whatever assumptions, attitudes, opinions you have about other people, you'll treat them accordingly. So using that as a premise is, you know, this company, for instance, they're, um, what is the meaning that, you know, what is the meaning of working here? What is the meaning of, our, of an organization? What is the meaning of a customer? So if we treat people based on the opinion that we have of them, okay, and you have this engagement in the company, so what is the meaning you're giving to employees? So it's just helping leaders understand that you know this meaning that they're giving to their employees is either causing a problem, and, and then through deeper research, I don't have time to cover here, but I came to discover one of the reasons why there's so much failure in change management is because there's a very strong wave counter wave, let's put it that way, or headwind against positive interventions because the the fundamentals, structures, and systems of organizations are based on false meaning. Actually, mm. they're medieval. For the most part, they're medieval. So we have, we have taken medieval concepts and brought them into the present. They are running our institutions. And you have, with, despite the best of intentions, change does not stick because they, they, the, the forces against you know, institutionalizing humane, uh, profitable organizations, that model of high humanity and high profit, they don't, Many, many organizations don't get there because it's, it's just there's too much resistance against it. So what we do from an organization development perspective, this is what you know makes me get up in the morning every, every day, is to help organizations through diagnostic process take a look at, you know, let's look at the outcome. You know, we have a problem with disengagement. People are not happy here. People don't want to come back to work to the office and so on. So what is the meaning? What what what's the meaning behind that? And um, through that conversation, we start to, data starts to come up and say, okay, because we have this assumptions, people are responding this way. Uh, and something as simple as that attitude, you know, that attitude you're either attracted towards something or you reject something. So if you want to increase motivation, there's a strong correlation based on our institute research, 
there's a strong correlation between attitude and motivation. So the more you can plot your towards something, the higher is going to be the quality of your motivation. So is it boys with the company, they don't want to be there. They have low motivation. They're not going to produce more because they're, uh, you know, very, very motivated. So, so that's just one example of what excites me about the work that I do and the work that I do within companies. So, okay, here's what's fascinating to me as I hear you talk about all of this um, amazing theory research mod models that you've created is I remember back in the day when we were still at Disney, you know, your nickname was like the professor because you were always interested in these things. And I remember back in 2005, when my dad died, you gave me that Victor Frankel book that I still have on my bookshelf today. And then after you left Disney, I know you became like a VP of OD and another company, and then you went on your own. Like, like this seems like, like some of the things you all are talking about with what your business has evolved to be are like seeds of what I saw when we were still back at Disney. How did you get from this, you know, the nickname of the professor having an interest in, in Victor Frankel and his philosophies, and then you go through this hiatus between, you know, you became an OD VP at another company, and then you go out on your own. And now you really have developed this whole body of work. Like, how did you, how did you transition into this and really trust that this ongoing emerging passion for the Victor Frankel and the purpose, as well as your skill sets as the professor can merge and you could actually create a business model around it? Yeah. Uh, if, if you look at our models, and it's very consistent with what we did at Disney, it's all about the need. There's a lot of pain out there. There's a lot of suffering out there. There's a lot of stress in companies. Just, just look at the macro indicators. We have serious problems with engagement. We have serious problems with people feeling stressed at work. It's not fun to go to work. So we have all these conditions that, you know, people are just miserable. Uh, they're not happy. <clears throat> and you see, and I've been, for instance, tracking the Elderman Trust Report, the, um, you know, all the uh, indicators around employee engagement, very stubbornly, they don't change. Now, you see companies sometimes celebrating, we've done this. Best Buy, for instance, is a good example of a company that's done a very good job with meaning and purpose. And you can see that their culture has shifted and they're doing well. So there's, there's some exceptions out there, but overall, for the most part, uh, most companies have gotten the memo that they need to change. And when they have the solution, they have difficulty implementing the solution because the headwind is so, is so strong. And so you, so of, it's your need, like your your passion and compassion for the need oh, got you to that particular business model? Because you were more a traditional OD consultant and now you've created such a unique business. So is it the need that got you to that point? Like your compassion for the opportunity? Is that what got you over the hump to say, yes, I can make a business out of these unique ideas that I have been, I have in my head and these unique methodologies, like I could do this and I could become the father of meaningful purpose. Like how did, you know, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, Harold, you get the question yeah. I'm trying to ask, right? Cause that's a huge leap. Like that's a, to become this kind of thought leader and really trust that, you know, other people are listening. It's like, I've got a really cool idea. I want to, yeah. I want to become the, the mother or father <laughs> of whatever. Like, how did you trust, how did you trust your, these amazing ideas enough to birth them in the way that you have into books and workshops and new methodologies that companies are using? In terms of context, Betsy and Harold, what, it all started back in NTL, to be honest with you. I trained, I was trained in OD by the students 
of Kurt Lewin. Actually, I was fortunate enough to take a, a course with Benny, which was a last revival member of the uh, core um, um, founders of NPL. And one thing that I noticed, it was, a very, it was very much based on humanistic psychology. So it was a, you know, how do you bring humanity into the company? So there was constant like socio-technical theories, you know, and trying to find that, that perfect balance. And what happens with time is that, uh, unfortunately, consulting firms took the, the OD uh, model that was being developed at NTL, they took the humanity out of it, they kept it mechanical, they kept the tools. But it wasn't the expense of, it's all about making money, it's all about being profitable. So what I'm expressing is that I, I was very, and I have to get credit to other people, but at the same time, is the, the compassion as you mentioned, my values, that I strongly believe that people need to be treated with dignity and respect, that we all have dreams and aspirations and fears and concerns. My role in life is to treat other people, that includes my wife, my business partners, my friends, so forth and so on, in a way that I'm not an obstacle for them to become their best version of themselves. Mm. And it's to behave in a way where people can flourish. So it's helping people see that there's value and being a giving person and being committed to making other people successful. It's not a win-lose. I don't lose by giving of, of myself to other people or, or sharing my knowledge and, and methodology, but it's having a philosophy of life that giving is better than getting. And it's just operating out of that value system. So it's giving a meaning to people that they deserve to be treated with dignity, with respect, that they have dreams and aspirations. And if I don't treasure that, uh, um, and I'm not part of the solution, I can set myself up to suffer the consequences of, you know, of a system that is, that is so narcissistic as we find it today, unfortunately. As you can see it in politics, you can see it in many places now. So it's your values. Your values and your passion drove you and said, you know, whatever fear, it seems like that both of you, it's like, you know, it's not like you're free from whatever concerns the typical human would have, but it's like the values and the passion, that's what overcomes whatever obstacles to do what you're, you're meant to do. So it's you having mentioned a meaning, Yeah, it's having a meaning of life that is noble, that it's gonna do something good for someone or something. And if you have a meaning of life that is noble, you'll be a happy person. You, you'll know what to do in order to find some problem out there that needs you and that you're the answer for that problem and you prepare yourself to solve that. And that gives you energy. That's so beautiful. My gosh, I love that. Um, you mentioned that things like people are miserable in work today. You know, like there's things that I, I see when people talk about like, oh, the rate of change and people are more challenged and more stressed than ever. I remember people talking about that when I was in grad school back in the 90s, you know, where like, but it does feel different. Like, what do you see as the burning challenge for leaders and companies today? Like, what is different about today that makes makes the world of work much more complicated than five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? You want to start here? Oh, you want yeah, I, I, I think one of the things um, that is different now uh, that I'm hearing from leaders is this whole, due to the pandemic, the recontracting of whatever that psychological contract is with employees, because now uh, everything has turned with regards to not who has the power or who has the choice, because employees have always had the choice. They just weren't sure of how to uh, use it. But what uh, employees are coming to me and saying, we are struggling with regards to our return to work policy with how do we um, 
engage employees who are now more likely wanting to stay at home or to uh, have much more flexibility in both what they do, how they do it, who they, you know, who they uh, report into. All those things have now been changed to the point that leaders have to lead much more, as Luis was saying, from a place of values, from a place of care, from a place of, of different than I need you to you know, fill in the blank for whatever product we're trying to pr produce. So that, uh, that's why, for me, some of the work that I do is more with one-on-one uh, -on -one leaders as opposed to larger systems, because it, I, I have, I feel I, I can have a greater impact on this one VP when he or she is able to uh, put in place the systems that will allow their organization to to uh, envision a future that is is more of what they had had hoped for as opposed to what it was even three or four years ago. Um, not every coach is an OD consultant. Not every OD consultant is a coach. It is a large overlapping Venn diagram, but it's not always the case. And I find that my ability to ebb and flow between OD consultant and the systems they work in an executive coach and what are the behaviors you're demonstrating to be successful or ineffective or, or effective or ineffective serves well in those conversations. So to me, the, the biggest challenge that I'm feeling is how does leaders lead a workforce who is dynamically changing, you know, five generations in the workplace now in, in some situations and be, you know, successful uh, in their own mind as far as what, what it looks like for them to, to be uh, the leader they want to be. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. And, but that is a big challenge I'm seeing right now. When you also mentioned earlier, the diversity and inclusion work, like what's different yeah. about diversity and inclusion now compared to three to five, 10 years ago? Well, um, I, it, it varies case by case, but I, I am finding more unfortunate organizations who are, who are looking to, to check boxes, unfortunately. They, they've either had some George Floyd moments or they've had some uh, corporate uh, citizenship things that they wanted to say, we're doing this work. And that work is measured in, you know, if culture changes is, is measured in years, DE&I work is measured in, in just as matter of, of time. And they're wanting something quicker, like, can we put diversity resource groups in place? Can we have a diversity council? Can we have a, a diversity tab on our, our website as a way of showing how uh, engaged we are about uh, leading across differences? And that, that's why in some ways, while I would do, I'll say it's DE&I because everyone recognized that the work I try to do in that work is how do I lead across differences? Mm. Clearly race is a big one. But you have the same thing with gender. You have the same thing with age. You have the same thing with uh, sexual orientation. There's a difference in what you, if you're a leader of a 50-person organization, the amount of differences that exists in your organization, if you're not able to um, be able to identify and speak to individuals as well as the collective, you're not going to be successful. So um, I'm hesitant when someone says, oh, Harold, African-American consultant, can you come in and do some DE&I work? I am asking a ton of questions before we even get to that point. Oh and oftentimes uh, it's it's a question of what are they, what are, they are they looking for a system uh, issue? Are they looking for an, uh, a team issue? Or are they looking for an individual? And all of those have very different responses, most of which um, or I Or check the box. Yeah, or check or check the box exactly. So, uh, but yeah, DE and I and return to work are two very hot topics that uh, I see a lot of requests for, and I vet very carefully. What about you, Luis? 
Uh, the question was again. What do you see are the biggest challenges that are facing organizations today that are unique, maybe than three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? I think it just continues to be, it's just different versions of a root problem. And again, I'm biased with my methodology, which is the meaning that we give to what organization, organization exists. What is the meaning of, of having a company running a company? And just to give you an example of these two schools of economics, the Friedman, who says that um, the only stakeholder that really matters is a stockholder. And then you have Freeman, I think it's in Chicago or Columbia, one of the two. Uh, Freeman is saying, no, you have to pay attention to the stockholder. Yeah, but there's also the customers, there's the community, there's the employee. So he's got this more holistic view, which I think is healthier, um, of concerns of you know, who's being impacted by this company. So we have to see it from more a systemic perspective. Um, so that's just an example of the tension that is happening within organizations and the challenges that companies are having because we have a stock market that says we need to return every quarter and it has to be X. And if, you know, if employees are affected, who cares? You know, because it's all about money. So the, the rest of the stakeholders really don't matter. So then the big question is, you know, what is capitalism? And um, what are the assumptions of capitalism? And what were the assumptions of which capitalism was established? And believe me, I'm a capitalist, you know, but I, I love capitalism. I modified oh, more our current- You're conscious, um, you're conscious capitalist. That's right, a conscious capitalist. But there's a lot of wrong assumptions in, in our, um, like I, you know, I teach some graduate students, just, for, just to give you an example, um, I was talking about systems, you know, the, the concept of systems. How can systems, um, you know, support change? And let's say you want to make a much more meaningful organization and experience for employees. So just take, for example, one component of systems, reward systems. Just, just reward systems. Just think about that. And uh, just to, to share with you what, what is happening today. Now, um, Adam Smith in the Wealth of Nations said that people are lazy. So you know theory X and theory Y. So he was saying theory X, that was the opinion of the time. He wasn't coming with something new. People back then believed that people were lazy. We see this happening through time. You see Frederick Taylor saying, yeah, people are lazy. Therefore, we have to make the machines. Just put a wheel all day, but I'll give you five bucks. It's, it's all about extrinsic motivation. You look at the press today, what is happening in Facebook, what is happening uh, in Amazon, you see Theory X. Twitter, well Twitter. Oh Twitter. my God. Yeah, Theory X is well and alive. So, what happens is that people aren't happy, and what you do, you just throw money at the problem. Now, let me ask you a question you know, to both of you. If, if I have to motivate you, what does that say about my opinion about you? Do you, you see don't believe the, I be, uh, that I have a self-motivation that you can tap into. So I, it has to be externally driven as opposed to internally inside of myself. That's right. So this Good is just answer. one example where meaningful in our research, the meaningful purpose psychology has revealed that we have corrupt systems. We have value systems that are based on wrong assumptions. And it's based on I have to motivate you. I have to have extrinsic motivation um, systems in place because I, you know, I have to motivate you. And that's the most disrespectful thing that you can tell a human being that you don't have the capacity yourself to self self regulate and self motivate. But at the same time, many people have been conditioned to be sort of this is the way it is. So I'm going to wait for them to give me money to motivate. Sort of thing. So that's what it been just one example of many that I can give you along with of how the systems are corrupt, how the systems are operating out of the wrong value systems. So the problem is going to persist. The problem is not going to change unless the meaning 
and the intervention has to be not just the individual level, it has to be at the systems level. Of course, individuals will make the changes, but it has to be changes at the systems level. So I'm, I'm hopeful that with the clients that we're working today that they're, they're getting it, that they're able to sort of transition from this very extrinsic approach, medieval you know, um, management theory to something much more current with human nature. And it's designing systems for humans that are aligned is genuine human nature that brings the best of people. But at the same time, yeah, it must be profitable, but it doesn't have to be at the expense of people. But you have to clean up the assumptions. And, and that's where the meaning comes in. I think this is fascinating. It's like, it feels like, you know, where you all were back in the day, there were seeds of where you have become and they were always there. But it seems like where you've taken it is it's everything's gone a little bit more macro. Like we gotten out of the tools, the approaches, even the consulting approaches we might've had at Disney into more around, you know, where does change actually really happen? You know, so as Harold talking about, it's at the leader level, I could impact a leader. And if I could impact a leader, then I could have this. Or as what you're saying, Luis, is it's not even at the organizational level, it's at the assumptions that the organizations are operating into. It's like, it's how how we even define capitalism needs to change. And so as you continue to evolve, who you were is who you are now, but just more in its fuller form. And and feeling confident now, maybe because you had all the experiences and all those other things like, yeah, I got what it takes, I got what it takes, but now it's like I could let this authentic part of me and what I really believe my true values, my true purpose in life to kind of flourish at this stage. This is beautiful, I love this. Um, if you were going to talk to someone, like, so the people I, I want to attract into my community are people who are purpose-driven consultants and coaches and that they're in it for, for the bigger picture, for the purpose, not just for the money. But the thing about purpose-driven people is they tend to not be big fans of marketing. You know, they tend to be the world's best kept secret. You know, what advice would you give to those people who are who have the same heart that you do and they want to get out there and do things like, how do you, what would you say to encourage them to go out, be bold, be strong, you know, overcome your fears, find clients, they need you. Like, what would you say? Okay. I would say it's not about you. It's mm -hmm. about the need. It's about people out there who have a need and, and you can see the need and you prepare yourself to alleviate, to improve, to make something and someone better, to help other people flourish. And it starts with the internal work of becoming the best version of yourself. And then it's not so much fear, you know, of where, will I be rejected? If you put emphasis on that, that's what you're gonna get. If that's the meaning you give to dealing with other people. But if you're coming from the perspective of, I have something of value that is gonna help this person sleep better at night, this executive or this leader as the case may be, you, you can go in with confidence that, you know, um, I know what I'm talking about and I know that I can help you. Again, mm -hmm. being humble, like Harold was saying, is not a matter of arrogance. It has to be humble, but this also demands that we prepare ourselves that we're very confident at what we do so that we can give that gift to other people. But it's not about me. It's about my client, what he or she needs. And, and they're the focus and the center of attention. And this is something that I think that you, we experience also at Disney. It's all about the client. It's all about the guest, you know, making sure that at, we do whatever it takes for that guest to be happy. And I think the same thing applies. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah I, I, would, I would agree with everything Luis has said. Um, 
I, the thing I would add is, is two things. One is um, it is about investing in yourself. Um, some of that investment is certification. Some of that investment is additional training, but that, that lifelong pursuit of, of development, of growth, of, of taking on things that you never had before, that you don't even know what you may need later on in life. And some of it you won't. Um, I think we can talk about certain brands. I, I, I became Hogan certified. I rarely use Hogan at all, but I learned quite a bit about leadership as a result of going through learning how to use their tool and have not been able to use it with a client, but it has served me well. I think the pursuit of lifelong development of yourself will always serve you well wherever you land is one thing. And then the second thing is relationships. I can tell you that in the 10 years that I've been externally consulting, there are relationships that I have maintained clearly with the two of you and others that have from time to time find ways to circle in with either opportunities or with uh, uh, suggestions that, that I may never thought of. It was, it was a relationship I had with another coach who said, while you're already doing coaching, why don't you go ahead and get certified and then this can open up other opportunities those conversations wouldn't occur if that person didn't know me, didn't have a relationship with me and could offer a perspective that sometimes I can't even see for myself. Uh, strong relationships always serve well. Wonderful. This is a, I love everything you guys are saying. I feel like almost like, like it's all filling my heart. It's beautiful. Um, okay. So if people want to get a hold of you. How do they find you? So if if um, the kinds of clients, like, so if you could be very explicit around the kinds of clients you like to help, or people just want to learn more about your work, you know, if you could share that and your website address or your LinkedIn profile address or where, wherever you, you want to want people to get to know you better after this episode. Not don't have an extremely large um, online social media preference, but presence, but, but I, ha I am on LinkedIn, Harold Hill. I have a HaroldHillConsulting.com is my website and HaroldHillConsulting at gmail.com is my email. So if you put Harold Hill in somewhere, you're going to find me just add consultant on the end and, and I'll pop up uh, either my website, LinkedIn or email. Isn't there a guy like in a musical, his name was Harold Hill that people might get confused on. The guy. Uh, yeah. Jackman is bringing him back around. But yeah, the music man to play. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if, um, so we're looking at haroldhillconsulting.com and mm -hmm. on LinkedIn, is it Harold, just Harold Hill? Yeah. I believe it's Harold Hill. Uh, I don't, a middle initial with L, but I don't go by that. And, and it, I believe I changed it from Orlando to Raleigh. So just Harold Hill, because there could be 20 Harold Hills. It's uh, Raleigh. And Luis, how do we get a hold of you? Yeah, you can find me also on LinkedIn. So just Luis AA, middle initial A, Marrero. You can see it there in the screen too. And we do have a webpage, www.bostonimp.com. It stands for Boston Institute for Mission Purpose, bostonimp.com. You can find me in Amazon, um, buy the book. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, it's on my shelf. I was looking to grab it, but I would, I would, it would have been hard to find. So yeah. Uh, okay. So that's my second book. Pretty proud of it. Um. So yes, yeah, so you also can find me in Amazon. But if you go to LinkedIn or if you go to um, um, you know, uh, our webpage www.bostonimp.com or Luis at bostonimp.com, that's another way to to reach me in. In terms of what I could do for you, we certify people in meaningful purpose psychology, OD methodology, and also applied to coaching. So we, we train therapists, coaches, consultants, uh, um, you know, based on discipline, we, we, we teach you how to structure the, the, the method to, to your science. 
but I also do coaching. We also do coaching. This is team of us. We also do coaching and we also do organization development and consulting and we do psychological and leadership assessments. We use the Hogan, by the way. One of the tools that we use is the Hogan. So we can wow. train you to do the work with, through meaningful purpose uh, methodology. Awesome. Thank you, guys. So we've talked about a lot of different things as it relates to our Disney background, current challenges today, your unique business models, how you came about those business models. Is there anything that you want to talk, share with me about organizational consulting, our Disney experience, or just the work you're doing? And I just didn't ask you the right question. The only thing that um, I probably have shared before uh, that I didn't talk about today was that uh, where my, my career started, I did not show up out of high school going into graduate school or undergraduate school saying, I want to be an ODE consultant. It literally took over time. My background was electrical engineering and people are like, how do you go from electrical engineering to organizational development? And in my mind, it's, it's simply this. We solve problems. When I was an electrical engineer, it could have been a problem with a resistor, a, a motor, uh, a, a nuclear reactor. We had to find a way to the solution to that. The same is true with OD, except it's with people. There is conflict, there is resistance, there is a lack of engagement, and there's, that's a problem in the system that has to be solved. So engineering and OD has a lot in, in common with each other. And that's how I think about the work that I do is that, again, the passion I have to do this work, if I was you know, a millionaire and didn't have to work for money, this is what I would want to do. And it is about helping people solve the problems, the large complex organizational problems that keep them up at night. That is the thing that uh, drives me to do the work that I do. That's awesome. So your systems thinking works in every scenario. So your right. your core. So it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Luis? Yeah. I would probably just address your guest uh, and students, Betsy. And and what I have to say is um you have have it in you, whatever it is uh, uh that is going to lead to your success, you already have it in you. Uh it's just a matter of you finding what the need is out there. That you would have a passion to fulfill, okay, a need that to hurt or an opportunity, a gap that that if you were to address that, it would make people sleep better at night, help them become better human beings. Focus on that, and then let that passion sort of ignite you to 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 learn what you need to learn, to polish your skills, to polish your abilities. But at the same time, I would also encourage you to take a uh, a deep dive around your value system which I have found through my work, which is amazing. Uh, a lot of people haven't really sat down to, to answer the question and explore the, the continent, the quality of their value system as, as people, as human beings. So take a look at what is it that I value was important and then let that also become the compass, you know, for you to do what you need to do and what the world needs you to do. And they're expecting you to do something to, to be part of that solution. On that beautiful note, thank you both so much for being on the show. This has been a wonderful conversation. I am super blessed to have known you for all of these years to partner with you and to have the opportunity to sit and hear the amazingness of what you've been able to create in your businesses. I'm, I'm blown away. Thank you so much for being here. So this interview officially wraps up my Organizational Consulting 101 series on the podcast. If you want to learn more about how to make money and a difference as an organizational consultant, you'll definitely want to get your free access to my brand new masterclass. This masterclass is for you if you want a single solution to achieving both your impact and income goals, you're new to consulting and you want a proven process that you can trust, or maybe you've been 
been a consultant for a while and you're ready to take your consulting success to the next level by landing work as a strategic partner to senior leaders. Or if you're a consultant and coach for reasons that are beyond making money, you want to make a meaningful difference in organizations. If any of these sound like you, definitely go to www.betsyjordan.com forward slash consulting hyphen masterclass and get your free access. And be sure to tune in with me next time where I'm going to be starting a new series on navigating career crossroads. Be sure to hit subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss it. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in. If today's episode lit a fire in you, please rate and review enough already on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. And if you're looking for your next step, visit me on my website at BetsyJordan.com and it's Betsy Jordan with a Y and you'll learn all about our end-to-end services that are custom designed to accelerate your success. Don't wait, start today.